so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Mark Mark was ready. It's 11.25. Mark was ready at 10.45. I mean... You see, you do that, and and that just the best you part know, is not only are you, know you patronizing, a- but you also kind of look crazy. Yeah. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is Brent Leatherwood. That's it? I don't get ever faithful co-host, whatever you usually describe me as? No, because... Special guest? Uh-uh, no, because you were not entertaining my jokes earlier, and oh, so I got okay. fed up with you. <laughs> well, it's good to be here with you again. <laughs> well, glad Thank you're Thank you for here. the invite to yes, come back. of course. Uh, but also, I, you should notice that I said Brent Leatherwood, like it just kept going because we have a special guest on this podcast. It's not just Brent joining me. Uh, we have our colleague, our esteemed colleague, Jason Thacker joining us. Welcome, Jason. So glad to be here. And thank you for introducing me like that. Of course. And I feel like listeners need to know that our audio producer, who takes his job very seriously had a special task for us today uh, to help with the quality of our recording. And that is, you have to take a bite of a green apple because it helps, apparently, with different popping and things like that. So we all have green apples in front of us. That's right. It we, feels like the first day of school. It where does. You bring, Except <laughs> bring I took a, a bite and Lindsay took the entire apple. <laughs> well, I'm going to finish it. It's a healthy little snack. It is. It is. So not only are we doing good Radio hygiene. We're, we're also just getting full, I, I don't, getting getting fed, or I don't know. <laughs> we're getting, we're doing things, healthy things with food. <laughs> well, yeah. All, okay. He should have brought peanut Same. butter uh, Reese's peanut butter cups if you know if he was asking me. That's, That's what true. I would have said to him. Yeah, brought, but, but I don't think that would have helped. with no, the, have. the recording no. quality. So. Uh, well, we're excited to have Jason on because he just released a new book. I feel like it was your 15th book since last month or something. And it's called The Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics in a Technological Society. And you've really paved the way in this technology ethics space and helped Christians and are helping Christians to think well about it. So we wanted to chat with you a little bit about this book, ask you some questions, and find out how it can be relevant for our lives, the lives of Christians in our homes, in our communities, in our churches, and in the work that we're doing. So let's get started. It's called the digital public square. Talk to me about what is a digital public square? Can you define that for us? Yeah, I think when most people think of a public square, they think of at least where I'm from in a small kind of southern city is we have these downtown squares. 
And these downtown squares were historical places where we would gather together. We would shop, we would eat, we would, uh, the police station was there, the lawyer, the bank, and we would do business and kind of commune with one another, have uh, community events and such. And over the recent decades and generations, we've seen kind of a lot of these downtown public squares fall into disrepute. They've kind of fallen apart. Many people moved out into the suburbs. There's been kind of a revitalization, though, in a lot of them. And I think this idea of a communal gathering space where we come together to discuss and to do business and to communicate with one another, it's kind of an apt metaphor for a lot of the digital spaces that we gather, whether it's a certain social media platform or whether it's an online kind of platform of some sort is gathering together. And that's kind of what we're talking about in a digital public square. But it's unique because these aren't, we don't have a single public square or a single digital public square. We have lots of them where we gather on various places of the internet and social media apps to communicate and to commune with one another. And through that, we're seeing some very interesting questions, a lot of benefits and promises of being more connected in some sense, but also a lot of drawbacks. And I think that's where Christians can step in and think about how do we navigate some of the tensions from free speech and content moderation to hate speech and pornography and objectionable content? And how do we think about what kind of the new contours of a digital public square is from the perspective of the Christian ethic? So just like a theoretical public square that, you know, features many voices, you know, speaking about relevant issues, uh, your book also features uh, a number uh, of voices. Uh, how did you go about selecting the folks that would contribute to this volume? And what are some of the, the issues that they're talking about? Yeah, really from the outside of this project, which is one of the products of a larger research project that we have here at the RLC called the Digital Public Square. This volume, what I wanted to do with it and kind of the vision was not just to have a single volume by a single author about all of these different issues. One, because uh, that takes a much longer time to write. And a lot of times a volume like this helps us to get ahead of some of these issues and to think proactively about them. But also one person isn't able to address all of these issues. And there's also a lot of diversity, even within the Christian ethical tradition about how we navigate some of these questions of ethics. We have theology, which we are Orthodox Christians. We come together and believe. But then even when you start to apply those things, especially in a space like a digital public square, we benefit from a myriad of voices. And that was something that I really wanted to have with a volume like this is to bring together experts from lawyers and um, international policymakers to uh, ethicists and theologians to come together to think through some of these issues. And it was a really just, the Lord was very, very kind through it. A lot of the voices is kind of the initial that I wanted to have in the volume were able to do it. Uh, we were able to address a host of issues. And I'm really, really pleased with the quality of work and the way that this kind of helps push the conversation forward because it's one of the first kind of Christian ethical explorations into the digital public square and into some of these questions. And I wanted to make sure we had the right people at the right time speaking into these type of issues. So what attracted you to this topic? What develop, helped develop your interest in technology, technology ethics, and then in the digital public square? It was actually a book. Probably f six or seven years ago, I read a book by you all know Harari, and it's called Homo Deus, and he has like the best subtitle of any book. It's A Brief History of Tomorrow, and I really love that. He's dealing with technology issues. Um, but if you know anything about Harari, he's not writing from a, a Christian perspective, much less an even theistic perspective. And so when he was addressing a lot of just the issues and questions about technology, I found myself going, yeah, but what? And how do Christians think about that? And I don't think that's exactly how we should address those type of issues. So I started writing. And that kind of snowballed into a lot of different projects, including back in 2019, 
where our organization, the URLC, launched the first ever faith-based statement on artificial intelligence, which was one of the emerging technologies of the time, followed subsequently by my first book on AI, specifically in Christian ethics. And from that, this kind of idea, these questions of the public square, especially around content moderation. And really the two big questions that we're facing in terms of the digital public square today relate to issues of free speech and also religious freedom. But a lot of times when I was noticing a lot of the resources, a lot of them focus on questions of free speech, but they're often not talking about issues of religious freedom, whether it's domestic or abroad. And so that's what I wanted to do. And alongside that, I had opportunities to work alongside a lot of technology companies, giving advice, especially policy advice about how to craft policies and to think through a lot of the myriad of issues that we're facing because in the digital public square, we do have a diverse set of voices speaking into how do we define hate speech? What about objectionable content? What about issues of sexuality and gender online? How do we think about international issues? Because these technology companies aren't just operating here in the United States, they're operating abroad, transnational, and operating a coast of different speech codes and different laws. So how do we think about that rather than just from a purely kind of United States perspective, American perspective, but even an international perspective? And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write a book like this and edit a book like this is to speak into that and be part of the conversation to provide kind of a Christian, not alternative per se, but a different take, a Christian ethical take on a lot of these issues rather than a lot of the other voices in the public square today. Jason, earlier you uh, used the analogy of town squares that dot the land. And, you know, you talked about how, you know, initially there were places where people gathered and then they've uh, fallen into disrepair, maybe as people have moved away, but now maybe there's a, a bit of a uh, renaissance with with town squares. Where do you see the digital public square on that continuum? Is it in a healthy place? Is it in a state where it needs attention? I definitely think it needs attention. I mean, there are a lot of benefits. There's a lot of opportunities today in the public square. And one of the things, if you step back a little bit, is to make sure that we don't think technology is good or bad. And that's something that I do in the first chapter of the book is kind of setting the stage to say, what are we talking about here? When we talk about technology, it's not good, it's not bad, nor is it neutral. Uh, this idea of viewpoint neutrality or that we can somehow kind of have a neutral public space is just not tenable. It's not a reality. All of us bring our deeply held beliefs, whether they're theistic or not, into the public square. And that's how we operate. That's how we want the society to be structured in many ways. And so one of the things that kind of addressing a lot of the challenges, we're facing some very, very unique and very, very important challenges in the digital public square today. Um, not only in the fact that a lot of our law and policy hasn't caught up in some sense with technology that's ever-changing and expanding, um, but in the same respect, we're having a lot of questions about free speech. We're having a lot of questions about hate speech especially, especially in terms of issues of uh, gender and sexuality or LGBTQ plus issues, about how do we navigate these things in terms of having these free online platforms but they're also owned by private companies. So how do we think through some of the contours of, well, does the government have a role in legislating or regulating this industry? Or what do we as individuals, what's our place in the public square? How do we think through this? What's the role of technology companies? But not also the role, but also the responsibility, the immense responsibility that they have on governing our speech in many ways uh, that is happening increasingly in a digital world online. We're seeing this through social media platforms and email communications. But as many of the authors also note, this also goes down to internet service providers. This goes down to servers and a host of kind of uh, elements of the digital public square that often go unnoticed. Uh, Nathan Lieber in the book and 
uh, his chapter on technology policy talks about the stack. And we often think of the top of the stack because that's what's most visible in terms of Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. But there's all sorts of different layers in that in terms of who hosts domains and the servers and the, the ISPs and all of these things that we need to take into account when we're thinking through the nature of technology policy, when we're thinking through the nature of these bigger questions of free speech and uh, religious freedom in the public square. And so it's, I wouldn't say it's in a healthy place in many ways. And that's one of the reasons I hope that Christians see this as kind of a, a call into the public square, a call into these issues to be well-equipped to understand the nature of these issues rather than just kind of having knee-jerk reactions or gut-level reactions to whatever's happening, kind of the flavor of the day, is to step back and ask some of the deeper, bigger questions that help us to address a lot of these symptomatic issues that we see today in the public square. It's funny, I just, yesterday, I was, I can't remember who it was, uh, but it, they were on social media and they were nostalgic for the the days of old in the in the digital public square and by that he was describing like he's like i i i i miss the internet of about 20 years ago where hobbyists would have blogs and you know maybe the, no one but their brother read what they wrote but they they were really passionate about this particular subject and they just wrote about it and they had a job they had other things that they did in their life and he's like, now everyone's got a Substack, and everyone wants more followers on whatever platform. And and he just said it, it's so chaotic now; it's exhausting. Do you, as someone who follows emerging technologies, uh, reforms that are proposed for social media usage? I mean, all of it. Do you ever find it exhausting? It is extremely exhausting, and it's almost exhausting by design in some sense. Uh, the writer Alan Jacobs writes uh, that we live in a day of information overload and in what he calls a battlefield triage, where our, we don't have the ability for our attention spans to be less than a, a few seconds even. You're scrolling through Twitter and you go from one breaking news to another breaking news to a major controversy to backbiting and positioning and influencers this and ads here and that. Our attention span is very, very small, and we're going from issue to issue to issue. This is what Neil Postman would talk about in the Now This culture. Now, granted, Postman's actually writing this about cable news, mm -hmm. where the, the news anchor gives you maybe 30 seconds before they say, and now this, and they go to another story that demands our attention. In social media, that goes down from 30 or 45 seconds to milliseconds even, as fast as we can scroll, as fast as our thumbs can move. We live in a day of just complete and total information overload. We're simply unable to process so much of what happens. Even listeners to this podcast may very well right now get a breaking news alert on their phone and then a notification about something that's happening on social media and an email and a phone call and a text message. And so even in just a few short minutes, we can be completely and totally overwhelmed. I always say that we have access to more information now than previous generations had in an entire lifetime. You can have 2.3 million Google results in like two or three milliseconds versus a time of analog study and thought. And there are some benefits to that. I don't want to say this is all negative because it's not. We do have more access to information. We do have, in some sense, the democratization of information where all people can access these things, whether they're a despotic government or authoritarian regime wants them to access it or not, they still have access to truth and the ability to express themselves. So there's a lot of good, but there's also a lot of bad that comes along with that in terms of attention spans and the way that technology is forming and shaping us as people and how we understand the nature of truth. And we've written a lot about that and talked about that here at the RLC, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and disinformation. 
to questions of identity and authority. These are, at the times, most of what happens in the digital public square really aren't new questions per se, which I think can be heartening to us as Christians as we think about how to apply the robust nature of the Christian ethic in an ever-changing society. The questions we're asking really aren't that new per se, but the opportunity and the the scale at which uh, we're answering and addressing these type of questions feels daunting. It feels overwhelming, and it can make us feel nostalgic in some sense. But we have to remember that God has created us for this day, for this time, and that His Word, specifically the, the Scripture, is more than sufficient and robust for us to navigate any of the challenges we face from that place of hope and peace and uh, rootedness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 that the whole sum of the Christian life, the whole sum of the Christian ethic is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. That is the first and greatest commandment. We are to love God and love our neighbors ourselves. And that is how I think we can best navigate the challenges in the digital public square, not out of a place of fear, not out of a place of anger, but out of a place of this resolute hope that's fixed to this unchanging truth, even in ever-changing societies. So how is your study of these things and uh, what you have come to know and experience change the way you interact with technology and the digital public square in particular? I'm an ever-evolving project in some sense in terms of my use of technology. So I remember early on starting to write about these things. I've always had like screen time apps on my phone, limiting certain things, especially I say, if you're a parent listening to this or even an adult, even I would just encourage you go right now onto especially your iPhone, because most of us have iPhones at this point or Android devices for other users and go into and turn the parental controls on. It sounds funny. You think, oh, this is just for kids. It's actually for all of us. It helps to filter out some of the worst and most violent and graphic content on the internet. Just to limit adult websites. That's something that's on all of my devices. That's kind of default in my family. It's very, very common. But I started to realize just how much time I was spending online and what that was doing to my marriage, what that was doing with my children, what that was doing for myself even as an individual and my relationship with God. And so one of the things I started to do was put time limits. And some of the, sometimes I'm asked, like, what, what are five or six things you would immediately do? I say, one, we need to slow down because we live in an ever kind of frenetic pace where we're always on, we're never disconnected, we're never able to rest and to put things away. I mean, even sitting at this table, we all have our phones within about a foot of us at all times. We all, most of us are even wearing smartwatches and digital devices all the time so we can constantly be connected. So that idea of slowing down, I think, is one of the big things we can do. But for me, I also put in those time limits. I have downtime from about, I think it's at like 8.15 now until 7.30 in the morning. I can't access social media on my phone. Um, Now, does that keep me off of it completely? No, because I can go get on my computer, but there's a little bit of friction introduced that makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, There's also times where I have a certain time limit. So I need to actually probably even now talking about this, probably lower that limit a little bit. Um, But the idea of having maybe just an hour or an hour and 15 minutes total on my phone in terms of social media. When you hit that limit, you've hit the limit. You can't do anything about it. And the best part is I don't have the password to my phone. My wife does. So I have to go to my wife and be like, can you uh, give me some more time on this? And she's like, what did you do all day that you've already run out of time? So there's a little built-in accountability in that sense. And all that's doing is so that on Sunday morning, I don't get that dreaded notification. I don't know if you all have this set up, but I do. It's always right as I'm either leaving the house or as we're getting to church, 
I get a notification that says, your screen time was up 57% last week. And you're like, I know, get behind me, Satan. Like, I already feel guilty. <laughs> I don't need a reminder about how much time I wasted. But it's more than that. It's not just about the time I wasted, but what was I not doing? Spending time with my wife, reading, spending time with the Lord, spending time with my kids, getting to know my neighbors in an analog way. So what I want to do, and especially with this type of project and the volume, is not to condemn technology as somehow inherently evil or bad, but to also not say that it's all good. It's to take a more realistic approach to say, yes, God has given us these technologies for our benefit. Um, he's given us these abilities to create, to utilize these things to be more convenient and be able to work harder and faster and stronger. And all of those things can be good but we can also take them in really dangerous ways and dangerous paths. And we need to be aware of that as Christians, that these tools are not neutral. They're shaping our perspective of God. They're shaping our perspective of ourselves and even the world around us. And I think that's where Christians need to slow down, ask some of the big questions. And that's what we hope to do in this volume. I'm still processing your your previous answer to my question a little bit. And you, you touched on some there with, with Lindsay just now, but go back to, you know, you talked about, we still, as, as Christians, have a responsibility to love God and love our neighbor. Yeah. That doesn't change whatever the context we're, we're talking about. And I'm just, you know, um, I'm thinking through interactions online, on, on social media, and there's a number of Christians who, and I'll, I'll put myself in that, fall short of that uh, online. And so, you know, what can we do as Christ followers to really be better with our interactions online. I mean, so you've given us some handles for how to keep technology in its in its proper place. That's great. I think we all need to adhere to that. But then the actual engagement yeah. online, like how do we make that God-honoring? Well, I think we all fail. I, have, I think we all need to recognize that. And the, the great part, the good news of the gospel is Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and letting that be true of even our digital and online interactions. One of the things that should never be said of Christians is that they are somehow nicer in person than they are online. I hear that pretty often. Oh, you just need to get to know him a little bit. Online, he's a little gruff and kind of uh, mm -hmm. difficult to be with. But in, re in reality, they're a much nicer person. The reality is, is that we're called to love God and love our neighbor despite the medium. We should be the same person, whether it's online or in person. And that's one of the things, there's that digital disconnect that I think sometimes happens where we think that we can say and do things online without any repercussions or any kind of responsibility at times. And often there isn't. There's not a lot of repercussions for something we say or do online, especially if you do it under a pseudonym or something like that. But reality is, is that we're still accountable before God for those actions and that we're still called to love God and love our neighbors ourselves. And how are we doing that online as well as in person? And so trying to get some handles of like, how do we start to navigate those things? I think we can one, slow down and ask some of these big questions of what technology is. How is it forming and shaping me? One of the things I did in my book that came out last year, Following Jesus in a Digital Age, that's written more for kind of the everyday church member. This specific book, is a, it's an academic book. It's to press in on some of these more philosophical questions, some of these more theological and also kind of uh, political type questions. But it's to slow down, ask some of those big questions and realize that technology is discipling you. I think a lot of times we think that technology is just this neutral tool, but it's actually shaping us. It's forming us and how we think about God ourselves and the world around us. And realizing that, you know, as Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind through the power of the Holy Spirit. That idea that you are being conformed, 
You are being shaped. It's not a question of are you being discipled? It's what's discipling you and to what end? And as Christians, as Christ followers, we're called to be led by the Holy Spirit, to be transformed, let the Holy Spirit transform and renew our minds. And that's what I think we can set back and create not only some friction in our interaction with the technology to slow down, but also to come into these questions realizing that we have the good news of the gospel and that the idea about how we navigate issues of the public square or social ethics and personal ethics and the relationship within government is that scripture is more than adequate. It's more than sufficient to navigate those type of questions. And what we need is are Christians that will step in not in kind of a knee-jerk reaction, not in an uninformed way, but to step in that have done the study, have put in the work. Um, There's a friend of mine who always says online, and I love the way she says this, she says, let Twitter especially, don't let it become the work. Let it be a place that you showcase the work. It's so easy today, and especially in an influencer kind of rich culture, to let the online interactions be the work. And I think that's where you can slow down, show the depth, and let that be a product where you maybe display or promote the work that you've done rather than let it being the work Mm -hmm. itself. And that's because that's one of the things that is these knee-jerk reactions and kind of hot takes of the day is to slow down and say, okay, is this really what's going on here? And how have I actually thought about this? And, you know, today I can't say that I'm a virologist and then tomorrow I'm a lawyer and tomorrow I'm an international policy expert. It's to say, look, I don't have that gifting. I don't have to speak to every single issue. Our friend Josh Wester always tells me, he said, the internet doesn't deserve your opinion on everything. And I think that's high time for all of us as Christians, no matter our vocation, no matter our calling, to realize that we don't have to comment on every single thing that happens, but we do step in when, especially when we're defending truth, that uncompromised and unchanging nature of truth, but we do so in a grace-filled way, just like our, our Savior modeled. I would just amend what you said. It's the place where you showcase your work. It's it's not the actual work. And that applies to, you could sub out from work, you could sub in ministry or relationships or activism or what, like that's that should not be the sum total of what you're dedicated to or where you find your identity. I I mean, obviously as Christians, we should know that. But that I think is an important aspect of this because it it seems like a lot of individuals out there, they think this is where the hard work gets done. And it's oftentimes, no, actually, and probably the intended audience that you're trying to either build a consensus with or make a difference with is not even seeing that particular interaction. Yeah, it really can be, especially because we live in kind of this influencer age where everyone seems to have to build a platform and a a position and kind of influence others and kind of um, be seen by the right way and the right people or by the right people. And that somehow makes us or validates us or somehow gives us a sense of worth and dignity. That's not where it's derived from as Christians. It's built right in the idea that we're created in the image of God. That's where our worth and dignity comes from. And so letting that be a place that we do interact, the digital public square matters. We should step in and think about these type of questions. Um, But not everything happens in the digital world. Things happen in the analog world. And as Christians, we are to be the people who prioritize embodiment. We care about the body. We are more than just our bodies. We're also more than just our souls. And so that idea of embodied souls, I think, is a really key concept as we start to navigate a lot of these questions. And we did so even in the book. The way it's structured is that we get into some of the bigger kind of framing issues 
Then we get into the actual issues themselves from questions of pornography and objectionable content, gender and sexuality, religious freedom, and even international human rights. And then we get into ideas of the church. And that's where I was really pleased and thankful to have folks like Keith Plummer, who teaches at Karen University, as well as Jacob Schatzer at Union University, to talk about the public witness of the church in the digital age, as well as the issues of discipleship in a digital age, and what's technology doing to us to take that more holistic and kind of full view of technology rather than the myoptic kind of sense that we often think of, well, this is the main issue. So actually, there's a lot more going on here uh, that wise Christians would take time to invest in. So when it's all said and done, what would be your greatest hope for what this book accomplishes? or what the Lord uses this book to accomplish. Yeah, for sure. And my hope and prayer with this book is that the Lord uses to open people's eyes, to realize that technology is not neutral and technology is not going anywhere. It's easy for us to long for the day before, whether it's that old form of the internet or even say, well, the the 1950s and 60s and 70s, they were pretty great. We didn't have all these newfangled technologies. Yeah, but they had their problems of their own. Those days were not great, especially for minorities in our communities even. To say these weren't these nostalgic days, these golden days that we need to get back to per se, but to realize that God is still God. He is faithful. He is good. He's given us his word to navigate, and he's called us to this day to navigate the questions as they are, the issues as they are, rather than how we might hope them to be. And to realize that our hope isn't grounded in the victory of today or the victory of tomorrow, but that eternal victory of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. Revelation 20 and 21, he's sitting on the throne, the people of God gathered around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is where our hope is. The end of the story has been written. So as Christians, we don't approach issues in the public square, whether it's issues of technology, buried in sexuality, religious freedom, human dignity, pro-life issues. We don't do any of those things from a place of fear. We do from a place of hope of steadfast hope and peace that's rooted in who Jesus is, what he's accomplished on the cross, and that he's already won the victory, and that he's calling us to live in ways that love him and to love our neighbors, ourselves, recognizing the dignity and value worth of every human being, from the preborn to the old age, to realize that we're creating the image of God, and that's what we are to promote, is this concept of a holistic understanding of human dignity rooted in how God made us, and honoring him above all. And I think that's what the work that we try to do here at the URLC, is letting that be the perspective in which we approach every single issue, is not out of a place of fear, but out of a place of that steadfast hope, um, because God is unchanging, and God has called his people into the public square that may be very dark at times, um, to do so to bring the light of the gospel as we seek to love God and love our yourself. And the other kind of twin parallel of the Christian ethic is that the great commission of the go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. Those kind of twin pillars of the Christian ethic, I think, navigate not only the digital public square, but a host of issues that we navigate even here at, at the URLC. Well, Jason, I'm really thankful. A, I'm thankful for the scholarship uh, that you've done over the years, I'm, I'm thankful especially that you have this new resource uh, that Christians can use, and we need it. We live in a complex moment. I like how you acknowledge uh, there are people that may pine for the days of old, but they had challenges too. Yeah. And so in that sense, this isn't unique. Uh, it's just the problems, maybe they're a little bit different, but the same truth that has always applied. God is on his throne, uh, and he will be faithful to help us go through this moment, I think is really reassuring. And that's something people need to hear because in so many spaces and from so many places, you just get despair. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I think you provide a voice of hope. The URLC provides a voice of hope. 
And initiatives like this uh, provide a perspective of, of hope. And so I'm really thankful for you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Thank you.